Well, hey, Trinity Park, we're back in Ephesians after a long hiatus from our series. We were in Isaiah for a long time. Now we're back into Ephesians. So as we get back into Ephesians, I just want to remind you of where we are in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians are all about the theology of the gospel, that is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, and that we're saved individually, but we're also saved as a community in him. And then the last three chapters of Ephesians, chapter four through six, are about the application of the gospel. And so right now we're in kind of the middle of chapter four, walking through this. We're talking about applying the gospel in our lives. In chapter four, the first aspect of application was unity. And now the second aspect of application that we're walking through is purity. And so today we're going to look at how the gospel should change our lives, how our theology of the gospel should impact our lives practically and personally in three different areas. These three areas are how we respond to life's challenges with our words, in our hearts, and with our senses. How do we respond to life's challenges with our words, in our hearts, and with our senses? And as we walk through this section, I want you to keep three things in mind in each of these Sections. So each of these three areas are incredibly practical and personal. What Paul is saying is if you believe the gospel, if you're centering your life on Jesus Christ, then these areas of your life should change over time. They should change. And so as one Southern preacher put it, today in this sermon, we're going to go from preaching to meddling. We're going to go from preaching to meddling. What I'm going to be doing and what Paul is doing is he's really getting under the surface of your lives. You're going to feel like the the core areas of your lives, of your words, of your hearts, and of your senses, you're getting meddled with by Jesus if you're really listening to what Paul is saying here in this passage. The second thing to keep in mind is that each of these three areas involve our relationships with each other. Although the call is to individual transformation, if we transform and as we transform individually, as we change in the gospel, it will impact our lives in relationships with one another. As we repent of our sin, our relationships with one another will change positively. If we do not repent of our sin, if we don't turn from our sin to Jesus Christ, it will definitely impact our relationships with our spouses, our kids, brothers and sisters in the church negatively. And finally, the third thing to keep in mind is that in each area of words, heart, and senses, there is a negative command and there is a positive command. There is definitely a negative command of turning away from something, but there's also a positive command in each section of turning towards something. If you go back to the previous section, which I know it's been a long time since we were there, but I just want to remind you Paul was talking about that we're new creations in Christ. And as a new creation in Christ, we are called to put off the old man and to put on the new man or the new woman that is being recreated in Jesus Christ. And so bear in mind, as as we walk through these three areas, these areas are very practical, they're very personal. They always impact our relationships with each other. There's also a negative and a positive command. So let's jump into these three areas. First of all, Let's talk about gospel change in our words. Gospel change in our words. And in each of these categories of words, heart, and senses, there are two subcategories. Two subcategories that Paul has for us in each section. The first subcategory under 
words is our relationship with the words and the truth. Paul essentially says here in verse 25, don't lie, tell the truth. In verse 25, chapter four, he says, therefore having put away falsehood. So falsehood here in the ESV is rendered as lie in the NIV. And in the Greek, what this says is therefore having put away the lie. The lie here is something bigger than just individual lies that we tell. The lie is the lie. If you go back to the previous section, it's the lie of idolatry. Idolatry is the big lie Christians have to put aside according to verses 17 through 19. And actually all individual incidents of lying that we, that we participate in in our lives have to do with the fact that we are believing a bigger lie. The bigger lie, what is the bigger lie that we're believing if we lie in, in individual circumstances? The bigger lie that we're believing is that we need to take control of our lives in some way that God is not gonna provide for. We can't really trust God to provide for us if we tell the truth, and so we're going to lie. Maybe we fear uh, not having the approval of someone. Maybe we feel like we need more money, and so we lie and cheat on our taxes. Maybe we fear punishment if we tell the truth because we would lose some kind of freedom. But the reason for lying in individual circumstances is because we believe a bigger lie. It's a lie that we need to take control of our lives in a way that God will not take care of us. Now, Christians are not suddenly perfect at the time of conversion, not at all. And the road to transformation is not a straight line. It's often uh, circuitous. We're, we're wandering all over, but the reality is that if we are following Jesus Christ, we will turn from the lie of being our own masters to the truth that God is our master who created us, who is recreating us, and who loves us and will not let us down if we trust in him. The positive command in this section, uh, don't lie, tell the truth. The positive command is to speak the truth with our neighbor, for we are members of one another. So what are the motivations that are given by Paul for speaking the truth? Well, two are given. The first one is we should speak the truth because those we are speaking to are our neighbors. They are our neighbors. They are our fellow human beings. They are created in the image of God. And as image bears, they deserve to hear the truth from us and not lies. And then the second reason Paul gives for telling the truth is they are our brothers and sisters, for we are members of one another. Every lie or every action of telling the truth either tears down or builds up the body of Christ. So telling the truth is important. And as we transform into Jesus Christ with our words, we will tell the truth and we will not lie. That's the first aspect of change with our words. The second aspect of change with our words is down in verses 29 and 30. It's the relationship between words and encouragement. And basically Paul says here, don't use your mouth for evil, use it for good. Don't use your mouth for evil, use it for good. Now, none of us as Christians actively set out to tear down one another or to hurt one another. No one has a word for the year 2022. You know, some people have words for the year. Nobody's word for the year that I've heard so far this year is destroy or slander or corrupt. We don't choose, we don't want to be like that. We have words like focus or surrender or love, but too often in the reality of our lives, the way we impact one another through our words is to tear down, is to hurt. So let's take, take a deeper look at this. 
Verse 29 in the NIV says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is acceptable for building one another up according to your needs, according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The word in the ESV for unwholesome is corrupting, is corrupting, which is probably the better word. Corrupting has this connotation of a disease that can spread through your body like gangrene. I read this week, actually, you know, the actor on the Allstate commercials, Mayhem, this hilarious guy is always getting into trouble and getting hurt. And uh, I found out that Mayhem actually, about 10 years ago, had a circulation disorder that was very serious, and he actually had to have two toes and part of his thumb amputated because of gangrene. Now, gangrene happens when the circulation of blood in the body isn't going well, and, and sometimes amputations have to happen. My point here is that corrupting talk can spread in our bodies like gangrene. Corrupting talk can prevent the, the grace of the gospel from flowing in the body of Christ, and so there can be casualties. Verse uh, 30 of chapter 4, this type of speaking, unwholesome or corrupting words, it, it says it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Now we need to recognize the Holy Spirit is a person, and this word grieve is a word that is used of a person. The Holy Spirit who lives in you and is with you and who loves you and is at work in you is actually grieved personally when you speak words to one another that tear each other down rather than building one another up. Yet the end of verse 30 is also true for us, where it says, we have been sealed in him for the day of our redemption. This is so encouraging because when does the sealing work of the Holy Spirit happen? The sealing work of the Holy Spirit happens as soon as we become Christians. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So the very first second that you're a Christian, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then until the, the day of our redemption, when does that day happen? That is the very last day of your life until you are translated into glory. So the first day of your Christian walk, the last day of your Christian walk, and every day in between, the Holy Spirit is at work in you to transform your life. And so back up to verse 29, the positive command is to use your words to encourage each other to build one another up. Now, encouragement is so important in the church. If you have the gift of encouragement, I praise God for you, and I pray that you'd continue to pour out that gift on us. We are a tired and weary people, and every single one of us need to experience encouragement. But you don't have to have the gift of encouragement to encourage. The, the call of the church, the call to every single one of us, is to, to use our words to build up the body of Christ rather than to tear it down. Now, this verse 29 of Ephesians 4. Actually, every first letter of this verse, Ephesians 4.29 in NIV, was the password that we used when I was a missionary overseas in China to load our VPN on our computers. I don't know how many times I typed out, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only was acceptable for building one another up according to your needs that it may benefit those who listen as I loaded my VPN in China so we could securely write emails. Why was this the password for our mission team? Why did the organization I was with choose for this to be the password? It's because there is nothing more important than the way we use our words with one another. Nothing more important. And so they wanted to remind us, as we log on to write emails, as we log online to do whatever we wanted to do, we need to remember that our words are important. You may think that the reason, the number one reason why mission teams are effective 
is because they're really good communicators. It's, they're really good at speaking the gospel to, one, to, to, the, to the community in evangelism and seeing conversions. Maybe they're really good planners or really good strategists. Actually, the number one reason why missionaries thrive or fail overseas is because of team relationships. It's because we, we tear down one another rather than building up. And so missionaries have to leave the field because of team relationships. But if missionaries know how to speak the gospel to one another, know how to love one another, they stay on the field. Their teams thrive and they see the mission succeed. How we speak to one another, whether you're a missionary or you're here in the U.S. and you're a part of a church, how we speak to one another, either in love and encouragement to build up or with these corrupting words to tear down, is super important. And so Paul says the gospel should change you in your words. You should speak the truth and you should encourage one another. The second area of gospel change is how the gospel impacts our hearts how the gospel impacts our hearts. So if you already thought that, that Paul and I were meddling with you and kind of getting a little personal, we're just going to keep on getting more and more personal as we go along, as we go into heart and as we go into the senses. And Paul says the gospel should change your heart. In particular, there are two ways, there are two subcategories, again, for every section. Your heart should change in two ways. And how you respond to uh, feelings of anger, and in fact, what makes you angry in the first place and how you respond in that anger. And then second of all, in whether or not your heart flows with sourness at its source or kindness at its source. Sourness or kindness. Let's talk about the first aspect of our hearts, anger. Paul says in verse 26 and 27, don't get angry about the wrong things. Instead, get angry in the right ways about the right things. Don't get angry about the wrong things. Be angry in the right ways about the right things. So normally when we think of anger, we think of wrong anger. We think of the wrong kind of anger because we see this a lot in our world and in our hearts. But Paul tells us there's very good anger that we need to understand if we're gonna conform our hearts to Jesus Christ. Paul is saying your problem isn't anger per se, it's what you get angry about. And when you get angry in the wrong ways, what you do with that anger. But let's start with right anger. What does right anger look like? What is God-like anger? What does God get angry about? Well, in Genesis 3, God gets angry at the serpent. God gets angry at Satan for bringing sin and death and brokenness into the world. When God sees sin wreaking havoc in our lives and in the world, it makes God angry. Last week, we talked about Isaiah 58. When we look at how does God view us? How does he view his church? How does he view the world when we don't take care of the vulnerable? How does he view us when we have money and power and we don't help other people with it? It makes God angry. He feels like it's vile to him. It makes him very angry. Jesus Christ, when he was walking this earth, yeah, there were plenty of times when he was kind. There was a couple of times when he got really angry. When did he get angry? One time was in the temple because the way the religious community was functioning and the rules that they had were blocking out poor people, blocking out the nations, blocking out certain subclasses of people from enjoying and being able to come into worship. And it made God angry. God gets angry about the right things. And we need to learn to be like God in the way we get angry. The more we grow in godliness, we'll be angered about things that God gets angry about. But we're often not angry in God-like ways, if we're honest. What are we angered by? 
Honestly, we're angered by things that make life harder for us. We're angry about times when we have to spend money on things we didn't expect. I had an AC problem recently in my house. It was, it's probably going to be expensive. It, it, that made me angry. Uh, my car is having issues. It makes me angry. I, why? Because it, it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient for me. I don't want to deal with that right now. We get angry about things that make our lives harder. What instruction does God give us on how to address self-centered rather than God-centered anger? Verse 26 tells us, first of all, there is a way to be angry and not to sin. We need to remember that there is a way to be angry and not to sin. This anger without sin only happens when we have a heart change that is wrought by the gospel of grace. As we replace self-centeredness with God-centeredness, we can be changed. But then verse 26 goes on. If you are angry with self-centered anger, how can you minimize the damage? Well, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this command does not literally mean that you need to not let the sun go down, no matter if it's winter or summer, or if you live on the North Pole and it's winter and you're only getting like four hours of daylight. He's not literally saying you cannot let the sun go down before you repent of your anger. But what he's saying is this. He's saying that you don't need to nurse that anger. Some people say you need to keep short accounts. You need to take that anger and you need to to deal with it. You need to deal with it in righteous ways. And we'll talk about that in just a second. How do you do that? But first of all, you you need to not nurse that anger. One person told me recently that, that what can happen is maybe there's something that happens in your life. Maybe it happened a long time ago. And when that, that thing that happened that when you think about it, it makes you angry. It's like climbing to the top of a church tower. And it's like when that thing happened, a bell got rung. A bell got rung and all the reverberations, if you've been around a gigantic bell like that, the reverberations of what happened in your life are profound. And you still feel those reverberations sometimes in your life. But we have a choice when we feel those reverberations of things that make us angry, we can climb back up into that church tower and we can ring that bell again and set it off again every time. Or instead, we can entrust our life and our stories to God who is the true redeemer. When we nurse our anger or nurse our hurt, by doing that, we believe that somehow we're, we're dealing with that in a positive way, but actually it's just, it's just ringing that bell again. It's just starting the process over again. What we need to do is we need to trust the Lord, the Lord of our stories, that he is healing us in the process. And so when that old anger, anger or hurt comes back, we have a choice. We can grow in Christ and trust him and not pull the rope, or we can keep on pulling the rope and starting the process all over again. We need to be careful not to nurse uh, self-centered anger. Second of all, uh, our hearts, as we think about how our hearts are impacted, it doesn't just impact what we're angry about, it impacts the sourness or kindness of our hearts. Our hearts are, are the source from which life flows into our bodies. And if at the source we are soured, then a lot of things and a lot of people in our lives are going to be impacted by that. But if at the source of our hearts we are kind, then the same will be true in a positive way. First of all, Paul begins with the negative here. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along 
with malice. Now, I want to go through this list one word at a time, just very briefly, so we, we make sure we understand what Paul is saying by these words. First of all, he says bitterness. So a bitterness is a sour spirit that leads to sour speech. This person is some, something like the character Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. You know, Eeyore's probably depressed. This person doesn't have to actually be depressed, but they're soured. They can either be soured and they're quiet, or they can be soured and they're loud. And if they're verbally animated, they're just telling people all the time what's wrong with everybody else and how the world is not meeting their expectations. This is a bitter spirit, a sour spirit. Wrath means passionate rage. Anger means a more sullen, a held back hostility. Clamor is people who get excited and they raise their voice when they're fighting with each other. And slander is a person who may not verbally get very excited and animated when you're in the moment of fighting, but instead of speaking out at that time, they're thinking about who they're gonna text and who they're gonna call after to verbally process how frustrated they are. That's slander. And John Stott suggests that malice is really a combination of all the above. It's a sourness of heart that goes into full bloom, and then all of these things, or, or, or a host of these things, follow in a malicious heart. They have these tactics, they need to get their own way, which is the way of pain and hurt and destruction. And Paul says with this, in terms of your heart as a Christian, you just need to put away all this. You need to put off this and put on Jesus Christ. This way of living is not according to your new nature. This way of living spreads like gangrene in your life and in the church. Now, the positive command here in verse 31 and 32 is to put on Christ. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The Greek word for Christ is Christos. And the Greek word for kindness is krustos. And you, you can hear the assonant similarities in the way these words go about. And so in the early church, from the earliest of days, because of course Christ and kindness do go together, but because of the similarities of pronunciation, Christians just, just knew, it became a characteristic of the Christian community that they were kind to one another and to their neighbors. Christians should not just be kind, we should be tender-hearted, and that tender-heartedness should manifest itself in forgiveness. Again, I'll go back to that bell tower analogy. Forgiveness means that we don't climb back in, or we learn how to not climb back in and pull the cord of that rope and ring the bell again. Instead of ringing that bell, we learn how to forgive. Yes, we may feel the reverberations of hurt, from relationships. But instead of, of nursing that bitterness of heart, we learn to forgive. We learn to forgive. Why do we learn to forgive? We forgive because Christ forgave us, because our forgiveness of sins was so egregious and so, so pain-filling for God that what God had to do to resolve that is he had to go ring the bell of the cross. He had to go send his son to die on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven and set free. And as we become more and more focused on, more and more centered on this gospel of grace, that we have been forgiven of all people, we will learn how to not pull that bell again and instead extend forgiveness 
to those who hurt us. One of the most famous stories of forgiving grace and the, the, the grace that the gospel brings into our lives and relationships comes from Corey Tinboom. Corey grew up in Harlem, the Netherlands, and it's a, it's a famous story. You may have heard it before, but her family housed Jews and hid Jews from the Nazis in the Netherlands. And their family was found out and she was sent to the death camps alongside the Jews that they had. And while in the death camps, at first she hated those guards who treated them so terribly. But over time, she began to pray for the guards in these Nazi death camps. These, these men who, and women who were inflicting pain on her. And as she began to pray for them, she began to love them. She began to love these guards. And so her life, instead of being corrupted by Nazism and hatred, her life began to be a fragrance of, of not, corrupt, not corruption, but of, of forgiveness, of tenderness, of grace, even there in the death camps. The gospel can change us and will change us in this area as we learn to walk with Christ. And finally, thirdly, gospel change will come in how we respond to our senses. Our senses, Paul says. Now, you may wonder, why am I covering all of this in one sermon? This is, this is a lot. I'll, I'll give it to you. It's a lot. Our words, our hearts, our senses. This is the way Paul wrote it. Yeah, it's worth breaking these things down, but it's also worth thinking about them all together. This is the profound difference, the holistic difference that Jesus Christ makes in us as we learn to apply the gospel in our lives. And the third area here is how we respond to our senses. We find this in verse 28 and then also in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. In particular, these two areas, these two subcategories that we're going to look at are how we respond to our senses when we feel a lack, when we feel we don't have enough. And the first area is, is property or money, and the second area is sex. How do we respond as Christians, as those who are being transformed by the gospel when we feel this lack, this need for money? How do we respond as Christians when we feel this lack, this need for sex? It's very different than the world around us would respond. First of all, how do we respond in our, in our senses with property or with money? The message here in verse 28 is don't steal but work and give. How does a Christian who's being changed by the grace of God respond when they feel they don't have enough money or enough property? Again, we have a negative command and we have a positive command in the section. Paul says, first of all, the thief must no longer steal. Apparently, stealing was very common in Ephesus. Uh, historians tell us that in particular, because a lot of the, the work there was seasonal, uh, a lot of it was dependent upon the shipping industry that in the off season, it was pretty common for those who couldn't find work just to steal. They, they didn't want to look for new work. They would just steal. And so Paul is saying, what kind of a difference is Christ going to make in you as you're a part of this community? Well, the promise of God in Psalm 23 is the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or I shall lack nothing. We serve a God who promises to provide for his people. But that provision usually comes in a certain way. It comes through working. It does not come through stealing. Work was created, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but work was created before the fall. Work is pre-fall. Work is something that is good that God created. 
God has work for you to do. He's created you to do work. And some of that work that you were called to do, you should get paid for it. And that's how often God provides for his people. Absolutely, we should pray for God to provide. There's no question. And as we pray, though, we should work. We should realize that the, the main way that God provides, the ma- main way that God answers prayers for provision is by working. Paul also talks about this in his letter to the Thessalonians as well. If you feel a lack of resources, yes, pray, but also work. Good jobs are a gift from God. Good jobs are part of the fulfillment of Psalm 23, verse 1. But the goal here isn't just to make money for provision. The end game here is generosity. One theologian put it this way, only the gospel can turn a thief into a benefactor. And it does. I actually know someone personally who when he was in his 20s, he was caught for white collar crime. He was part of a kind of a plot, a scheme, and he ended up getting caught. And in the process of getting caught is where he got to know the grace of the gospel. And so he, as he ended up paying his dues and, and serving his time, he actually learned who Jesus Christ was. And as he was transformed by the grace of the gospel and learned that he was forgiven of his sins, he actually became not just someone who was a hard worker, who didn't steal, but he's become someone who is very generous with his money. He wants to give money away to other people. This is the comprehensive change that the gospel brings in our relationship with money. Yes, we have needs. We do. And so instead of stealing, we go work. Why do we work? We don't just work to provide for ourselves, which we do, but we work also so that we can be generous to the kingdom of God, be generous to those who are in need around us. Finally, the second area of how we respond with our senses when we feel a lack in our lives is how we respond when we feel a lack in our lives and we feel a desire for sex. And the Christian response is very different. We find this in verses one through four. Don't joke about sex, Paul says, but instead give thanks for it. Don't joke about sex, but give thanks for us. How does a Christian respond who's been changed by the grace of the gospel, how do they respond when they feel this need for sexual pleasure? Michael Foucault, who was a French philosopher, he's one of the fathers of postmodernism, he said, Christianity's most intolerable and burdensome legacy is sex as a sin. Christianity's most intolerable and burdensome legacy is sex as a sin. Foucault was speaking to the sometimes Victorian-like Christians who earned a reputation for being killjoys in the area of sex. So many people believe that Christians believe that sex is a bad thing. That's what the world often believes that Christians believe. But here's what John Stott says about this. He says the reason why Christians should dislike or avoid vulgarity or extramarital sex is not because we have a warped view of sex and are either ashamed or afraid of it, but because we have a high and holy view of it being in the right place as God's good gift, which we do not want to see cheapened. Sex was created by God himself. Again, like work was created before the fall, sex was created before the fall. Sex is a good thing created by God himself. Therefore, it is a holy thing. But like all other good things created by God, all other holy things created by God, Sex was corrupted, and much of what we experience today in our culture is a corruption of sex. 
So when we feel the desire for sexual pleasure, what do we do with that feeling and lack of need? And that, that feeling of lack and need? Knowing sex is created by God before the fall, that it's a pre-fall reality that God called good, where can we go to have this desire met? In marriage. In marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman, as long as you both shall live, is the place that God ordained for sex to thrive and to flourish. That's where it is a high and holy thing and, and also an awesome thing that God has created for us. But let's be really careful here. In marriage, sex does not suddenly become a selfish thing where you can demand sex from your spouse. We are called to love one another and honor one another in our pursuit of sexual desire, even in marriage. How do I know that? Verse two in chapter five, that Jesus Christ gave himself up for us. This is Christianity. There is no Christianity where selfishness is permissible, not, e not even and especially in marriage and especially in sex. So in sex, this is not a selfish thing suddenly in marriage. It's still a selfless thing. But when two selfless people are married to one another and they are their, their spouses and they're engaging in sex with one another, this is where sex can be high and holy and a beautiful thing in marriage. This is how God has designed sex to be lived out. How do I know that God ordains sex to be only in marriage between a man and a woman? You can look at verse three in this chapter. These words, sexual immorality, which in the Greek is pornea, and impurity, which in the Greek is akatharsia, they, come, they, they really cover, uh, they cover the gamut of sexual sin. Pornography, adultery, homosexuality, prostitution, the whole gamut is covered in the words impurity and sexual immorality in the Greek. Anything outside of marriage between a man and a woman, outside of that, is not the high and holy place that God has ordained for sexual desire to be for us. And ultimately, this is for our protection and for our good. What we find when we pursue sex outside of marriage is we find that it actually does not satisfy us the way that we desire for it to. It often uh, takes away, it takes away from us instead of giving us what we really desire. And then in verse four, this also involves our speech and our social media and our TikToking and our texting. Paul says, let there be no filthiness or crude joking which are out of place. Out of place. So Paul's saying, and you may be like, well, this is so like, it, it feels like it doesn't really fit in our culture anymore. I'm telling you the Ephesian culture was decadent. It was sexually decadent. Temple worship in Ephesus around the temple of Diana, uh, an absolutely sexualized culture. And Paul is saying something radical. He's saying that sex is so high and so holy as Christians, you have to, you have to leave the cultural version of what sex is. And you have to embrace the version that God has for us, where he says there should be, it should not even be named among us that we would be participating in these things. End of verse four, how do we change? Paul says, let there be thanksgiving. Instead of considering how much we lack, consider how much God has given us. And as we are thankful, we can be transformed and we can learn how to be, um, be patient in this area, be content in this area of our lives, waiting for God to provide for us in these ways. Now, listen, I started at the beginning by saying, how does the gospel change us? We, we started in Ephesians 1 through 3. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes us by his grace. We're, we're included in a community. We're individuals 
We're, we're included corporately into this community and the gospel brings this radical change. This is what it should look like. We should look like we are pure. If we're honest with ourselves and we need to understand this, we are all people who are be, being transformed. There's not a single one of us who has reached anywhere close to, to total sanctification. And yet the Lord does call us to be, it says in verse one of chapter five, be imitators of God, to be imitators of God. That is our calling. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, we have to learn to, uh, the gospel dance. This is what, I've, I've taught this before, but I'll teach it again. The gospel dance. And there's three areas of the gospel dance. You need to learn how to repent. You need to learn how to believe. You need to learn how to fight. In any of these areas, these three areas of our words, our heart and our senses, how do we respond? When we respond in the wrong way, we need to learn to be the chief repenters, the first ones to repent. We need to be the ones that say, I'm sorry first in our marriages. I'm sorry first to our children. I'm sorry first in our relationships. And as we really are genuinely sorry and we repent, we need to believe. We need to believe that we're forgiven. Believe the gospel of grace. This is who we are. We are, we are saved by grace in Jesus Christ. But we don't just repent and believe. We fight. We go out and we fight the good fight of faith. We go out and we go and we keep on working at this. We keep on participating with God in our sanctification and you may think in this triangulation, this dance, this gospel dance, that's a three-step of repent, believe, and fight. It may feel like you're just moving in a circle. You're not making any progress. But actually in your life, the more you center your life on Jesus Christ, the more you triangulate your life, not just in theology, but also in practice on Jesus, you will find that over time you do change. We don't stay stationary. We're not just going in a circle. We actually are spiraling upward as we focus our lives on Jesus Christ. We are not perfect as Christians, far from it, but we're called to be imitators of God. And I pray that we would press on in his grace, by his grace, that we would press on in grace and we would really embrace Jesus Christ and then live to follow him in these very practical areas of our lives. Let's pray. God, would you bring transformation in our lives? Lord, we need you to, do, to help us with this, Father. We, we thank you that you've saved us. Lord, we thank you the promise that we've been sealed on the first day until the final day. But on this day in the middle, Lord God, we pray that you would be the one who transforms our lives so that we would grow in grace and we would look more and more like you in all of these relationships that we're in in our lives. Lord, would we do that? Would we engage in this, not for ourselves, but for you and for love of our neighbor and our fellow brother and sister in Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.